content warning before we jump into today's episode. This episode does deal with issues relating to eating disorders and anxiety and may be triggering for some listeners. Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about, and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship, and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th, so grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you, and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. I think that people looked at me and they were like, right, she's a model. She's doing Victoria's Secret. She's a Victoria's Secret model. They're skinny. She seems fine. But I couldn't climb my flight of stairs to my apartment. I was exhausted. My hair was falling out. I just felt like I was had completely lost grip with who I was. And it was just this constant thought of like, this can't be all that there is to me. Like, this can't be my life. Like, this can't be All I do all day is think about what I'm eating and working out and just sleeping. Like, I know that I'm missing the point of a lot of life right now. Welcome to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with the brilliant Bridget Malcolm. Bridget is a classically trained musician, best known as an international model who walked for Victoria's Secret in their 2015 and 2016 fashion shows, as well as walking for brands like Ralph Lauren and Stella McCartney. But Bridget's story in the fashion industry isn't just one of glitzy catwalks and endless travel. Instead, Bridget spent much of her early and most prominent years in modelling, battling a relentless eating disorder, which for two years saw her living off little more than protein shakes and steamed vegetables. In her darkest moments, Bridget found herself riddled with so much anxiety, she couldn't take a flight alone. In this chat, we talk about all of it. Bridget's lowest moments, her love of music, her complicated relationship with alcohol, her relatively recent diagnosis of postmenstrual dysphoric disorder, and how she feels about the modeling industry after everything she's been through. Bridget was so bloody kind and generous, and you won't know it from listening to the next 45 minutes, but we had so many tech nightmares when it came to setting up this chat. So thank you to Bridget for being so wonderful about the whole process. It was truly worth it. And yeah, we can't wait for you to listen. Here's Bridget. 
Bridget Malcolm, welcome to Shameless In Conversation. We are so stoked to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited and honoured to be a part of this conversation. We start every interview with the same question and that is, what was your childhood like? What were you like as a kid? I had a pretty awesome childhood, I have to say. I grew up in South Fremantle and I spent most of my time outside, a lot of time on the beach, a lot of time climbing trees. I definitely was a solitary kid. I like my own company and that's like a quality I've kind of carried throughout the rest of my life. I'm good on my own. My dad used to say like I would ask permission and then he just wouldn't see me for the rest of the day. I did ballet a lot growing up. I was involved in a lot of music. I had some pretty awesome friends that I'm still really close with today. Pretty normal childhood, I have to say. Bridget, one thing that we found so interesting when we were doing our research on you was that we had no idea that you were a classically trained musician. You picked up the oboe at the age of 14 and fell in love with it. Can you talk about your relationship and experience with music? Yeah, look, I've always loved music, but I I fell into the oboe at the age of 14 and I, I chose it because I went to quite a musical high school and I wanted to get into the senior orchestra. And prior to that, I was playing clarinet and like I was all right but there's a lot of clarinet players out there and I wasn't anything special and I really wanted to go on the Europe tour that the senior orchestra does and so I like looked at the the board with all the instruments on it and I chose the one instrument that no one wanted to play <laughs> which was the oboe and I said like okay if I don't get in after a year of playing then I'm going to quit music altogether I got in like gosh yeah I got in after a month or so and I don't know, music has always been a really beautiful part of my life. Like it's always been something that's really important to me, whether it was oboe or, I mean, I took up bass in quarantine and during lockdown and that's been really fun. It's just like a really wonderful chance to kind of to lock in and just not think and just like react. I want to make sure we don't understate just how magnificent you are and were at music around this time. When you graduated high school, you were accepted into the Sydney Conservatorium of Music, also WAPA. So what makes you then want to pursue modelling full-time in New York? I feel like those are quite different creative streams. Obviously, they're both in the creative industries, but I imagine it was quite a hard decision to make choosing option A in music or option B in modeling. It was kind of a heartbreaking decision. It's one that I really struggled with for a long time. Obviously, like music, I adored and I'm quite a type A person. I like to do things extremes and like it was fun to channel that into music. I could like practice for hours and hours in a day and like make reads and just go to classes and be, I don't know, just really happy and at peace in there. But, you know, modeling came around when I was 14 years old and it just seemed like too much of an amazing opportunity. And so for a while there, I kind of was doing both. I was auditing classes at Juilliard. I had a teacher in New York. I kind of was trying to do both. But, you know, the oboe is a difficult instrument at the best of times. If you're like up and traveling all the time and, you know, can't have a consistent practice routine or you're putting the instrument through all kinds of different pressures with planes, like it's it's really difficult to maintain. So I mean, I think I, I went to Wapa for until I was about eighteen and a half, nineteen. And then I had a job, I think, with Maybelline and they like called up my New York agent and I was in Perth at the time and said, you know, we want Bridget. And I kind of was like, Okay, like I'm just gonna roll the dice with this modeling thing <laughs> and see what happens. And yeah, I mean, I miss it a lot still. I, I miss the structure, but, you know, music and classical music in particular gave me a lot. Like it really it gave me a really deep appreciation for classical music and a really deep appreciation for music in general. And it showed me early on the power of having like 
a channel to focus my energy because I feel like if I don't have that, then I can like self-destruct pretty quickly. I love being able to work really hard at something. Modeling is fantastic, but it's not a job that you can really do that with. You've either like got it or you haven't. And yeah, I mean, I did try for a while. I, I channeled that energy into getting as skinny as possible, which I know we're going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> we absolutely are going to talk about it. But before we get there, I want to know what drew you to modeling in the first place. Like I know I imagine for an 18-year-old, the pull to New York and working overseas was huge. But what else did you love about the job? At that age, the things I loved about the job are very different to the things that I love about it now. Now I absolutely love the relationships and I love working with people who I've known for a really long time and just like who've known me through all kinds of things in my life. Like that is just what makes me so happy. But back then, I mean, honestly, it just seemed like too good an opportunity to pass up. You know, I I graduated high school when I was 16 because I'm born at the end of the year and I'm from WA. And like, I had an an O-1 visa to the States from the age of 15 and it just seemed like an amazing opportunity. The work itself was, it was fun, but in a different sort of way. Like it was exhausting. I never really felt particularly well suited to modeling, but like obviously something's working. (laughs) But like I found I could kind of tap into my ballet training and tap into that to kind of express myself on set in a way that felt authentic. And I guess in the early days, it was quite fun. Like it, everything was for the first time and like traveling a lot was exciting. I remember like one of my first shoots was at the Bulgari Resort in Bali. And I think I like left high school <laughs> and like got on the plane and went to the Bulgari Resort. And I remember thinking like, hmm, you get used to this. <laughs> Little did I know. <laughs> oh my God. I peaked at 15. <laughs> wow. So yeah, I think it was just like the fact that I was so wide-eyed about everything at that point. And I also have been so blessed to be surrounded by incredible people in my job and especially from such a young age. Like the photographer, like Nicole Bentley, she kind of shot me a lot in my early days and was just so super welcoming and lovely. She still is. And yeah, I've just been really lucky to be surrounded by people who have protected me and wanted the best for me. How did it actually come about, Bridget? Like, how do you become a model? I feel like for those who are not models like Zara and myself, it's quite an elusive industry and one that normally requires being scouted, right? Yeah. So modeling for me just feels like such a series of accidents. And how I got into the industry is just, yeah, it's it's literally just right time, right place. Because I definitely did not grow up thinking I wanted to model or like thinking I could have any sort of career in that. I I wanted to be like a nuclear physicist for a while before I settled on an oboe. (laughs) I was a very, very cool person in (laughs) high school. (laughs) So I was walking down the street in the city in Perth and my very first agent, Susie Deveridge of Vivian's, just like grabbed my arm and was like, you need to enter this modeling competition. I, you know, I had a mullet, a self-cut mullet. My hair was red. I think I tried to go blonde and managed to make my hair red. <laughs> I had like braces. I was like at the height of my awkward stage and they caught me right at that moment. So I have like photos of me from that day where I'm just like, you saw through a lot. <laughs> and so I entered the competition and I ended up getting third. And it's funny because like one of the judges, she's a really good friend now. Now she tells me, she's like, look, like out of all the girls there, like you definitely were the one who had the biggest career in the terms of like, you know, going to New York and like doing the high fashion end of things. She's like, but you were just so weird looking. (laughs) Like you really hadn't grown into yourself yet. You were very much a kid and like the audience would have been like, why? So they gave it to like another model who is absolutely drop dead gorgeous and has had a very successful modeling career as well, but perhaps who made a bit more sense at that point in time. (laughs) 
Your modeling career exploded, Bridget, around the time when Victoria's Secret was like the pinnacle. It felt like when I was younger and at the time that you were walking for Victoria's Secret, the runway was all over Instagram and Twitter, and it was all that young people could talk about. You were one of the very few to be asked to walk in 2015 and 2016. Can you take us back to that time of being told that you got the job and what that felt like? It's so crazy to think back to that time now and it just feels like I'm talking about a different person and like literally a different human being. And it was what, five, five, six years ago. So I guess a lot can change in that time. But for me, Victoria's Secret and the Victoria's Secret show was a goal. Like as soon as I kind of started modeling, I think an agent said you would make sense with Victoria's Secret. And, you know, I had to like look up Victoria's Secret and like look at what that was and be like, okay, I guess I'll do that. <laughs> and I had about six years of just trying to get the show and like casting for it and getting rejected like constantly and you know obviously it's clear now the brand itself has changed there's been a turnover of employees at that company and they're now like embracing diversity or shapes and sizes ages and that's great but when I was doing it it wasn't the case and so like I really struggled to get my weight down to the size that they required of me. My natural set point which is still very small like I'm at my healthy weight I'm a small person but like I was still much too big for them. So for me, like the first six years was just trying and failing and being so determined. So then like 2015 came around and I worked so hard for it. I went on a crazy diet with a nutritionist in New York. Well, he's actually a chiropractor. He's not a nutritionist, but that's another story. Um, I had lived off nothing and like worked out like crazy and I got the job and you know, I was super excited, definitely. But kind of the enormity of it settled in really quickly. And then imposter syndrome kicked in. And I was just like, oh, no, I have to actually do this thing now. And, you know, for me, like the biggest memory of the 2015 show would have to be the night before I hadn't had any water for three days. And I remember that night, like I dreamt about like waterfalls and oases, oases, oases. I don't know, lots of oases. <laughs> water. You dreamt of water. <laughs> water, yeah. And like woke up so thirsty and so miserable. Bridget, there was this really interesting piece that you did with Harper's Bazaar, and I wanted to read a quote back to you that was included in that piece about this time of your life. And you said, for two years, I lived off mostly steamed vegetables and protein shakes. I was so underweight that it would take me 10 minutes to climb a flight of stairs. I was tired, often going to sleep at 8 p.m. because I had no energy. My hair was falling out. I felt completely alone and isolated, but I was scared to leave my house. Did you sometimes feel like given what was going on behind the scenes, but how glamorous this career was outwardly that you were living a bit of a double life? I 100% did. Honestly, through large portions of my modeling career, I felt as though my insides didn't match my outsides. Again, I played the oboe in high school. I liked different things. I was not mentally equipped for a modeling career in my eyes. Obviously, I've been very successful, so physically it's working, but I never really felt comfortable in that line of work. It wasn't until I got into recovery, really, that I started to feel better about myself. But it was like my physical manifestation lived in one world and then my interior lived in a whole other world and like they were just at war a lot of the time my memories of this time now I just feel really sad for myself and sorry for me because like I I was so afraid and I didn't know what I was afraid of but I just kept running and running and running and it sucks you can't live on protein shakes and steamed vegetables for that long without really losing the will to live <laughs> it's really brutal it's shocking because like there's one guy in New York who puts models on that plan and like 
He has done that to so many of my friends. It took me years to get some level of health back after that. I was so sick. Bridget, how were your loved ones around that time? Like, did anyone ever reach out to you and say, hey, like, this doesn't seem okay? Like, it doesn't seem like you're okay. And it seems like maybe you're in a dark place. How did they kind of cope with it? Because I know that for eating disorders and mental illness, sometimes it can be just as tricky for those who are observing it happen to someone they love as it is for the person going through it. Totally agree with you. It's interesting. Like, I... I seemed fine. And like, I, I think because at that point I was also quite codependent, quite a people pleaser, really worried about making sure that everyone around me was great. I would go out of my way to just put on a show and be happy and be fine, quote unquote fine. And like, I think that people looked at me and they were like, right, she's the model. She's doing Victoria's Secret. She's a Victoria's Secret model. They're skinny. She seems fine. She's exercising and eating. She must be okay. You know, and I think it's that idea of, you know, if someone has an eating disorder, they have to present a very specific way. And the reality is like people can have eating disorders and not be that far gone. Like there is a spectrum and it's more about the behavior and the feelings behind the eating. Although I was very small. I look back at photos then and I'm like, my God, I found a bra, the bra that I wore in like the VS show, like at backstage. It was so small. I could barely fit it on my knee. Yeah, I obviously was quite small, but you know, at that time, my husband was based in LA. So we were doing the long distance thing. So I wasn't seeing much of him. And when you're in that space, it's difficult to maintain and have very real friendships. I didn't have the friendships that I have now. I don't have the wonderful, like rich life that I have now, because I just didn't have the capacity to show up for my friends. And it's a shame, you know, it really is sad. But again, like there is always a way out. I got my way out. And like the life that I have today, I wouldn't swap anything, anything that I've been through to be here. I think the the horrendous thing about eating disorders is that there's like this feedback mechanism going on, right? That the the less you eat, the more you lose weight. And that is clearly the end game for a lot of women who are going through these things. But in your case, you weren't just rewarded by the number on the scales. You're also likely rewarded by your income and your job, as you were saying with Victoria's Secret. Like these are the things that people were asking for. How do you break free from that? Like, what was the circuit breaker for you? <laughs> well, I mean, I 100% I agree with you. I think that like where the, the slip is, like women get focused on losing weight and then suddenly find that it stops being something that they're just focused on and it just becomes a compulsion and it becomes impossible to do anything outside of the way that you've been doing it. And that's where I think it becomes dangerous. I mean, the circuit breaker for me was, yeah, it was the start of 2017 and I couldn't climb my flight of stairs to my apartment. I was exhausted. My hair was falling out. I just felt like I was had completely lost grip with who I was. And it was just this constant thought of like, this can't be all that there is to me. Like this can't be my life. Like this can't be all I do all day is think about what I'm eating and working out and just sleeping. Like I know that I'm missing the point of a lot of life right now. So for me, then I moved to LA actually, because I was like, I just need some time out from New York. And I started therapy for the first time and started slowly to just start eating and putting on weight. And for me, like it took a while. I didn't go into recovery quickly and easily. <laughs> I like put on weight. I ate and ate and ate until I put on quite a bit of weight. And then I committed to just staying there. I was just like, I know that eventually, I guess I had faith. Like I knew that eventually it would even out. Eventually I'd start to have normal hunger signals again. And eventually I would come out the other side of it. But, you know, eating disorder recovery is brutal. It really is. It's not easy. I mean, it's worth it. But 
you know, it's not about the food. It's not like you can just stop doing it. Like you have to eat every single day and you have to learn what feels good for you and what doesn't. How I eat now is very different to how I ate when I first got into recovery. And it's just, you have to have the courage to show up for yourself every single day. And it's, it's really hard. Like my heart goes out to everybody who struggled because it is not an easy thing to go through. You've spoken about this on your blog and in that Harper's Bazaar piece that obviously there is that duality going on that behind the scenes you're really struggling and you're trying to recover from an eating disorder. But to people online or to fans, they might be asking you like, how do I get your body or how do I look like you? Was that a huge reason that you wanted to share this story and be so public with it so that there wasn't that kind of smoke and mirrors going on? Yeah, look, I I definitely, I still feel quite guilty about the way that I presented myself on social media and on my blog when I was sick. And I've written publicly and apologized for it and like acknowledged what I'd done. But like I was so underweight and like doing day on a plates that were completely untrue. Like we're not even remotely close to what I was eating. I was trying, I, I don't know what I was trying to do. I was trying to pretend like there was nothing wrong because I wanted to give people what they wanted. but the reality is I wasn't doing well and it was very disingenuine. And for me, like when I started to finally own up to what I've been doing, how sick I'd been, where I was at now, when I started to publicly post about gaining weight and it's not like I gained that much weight. Like the reality is like I'm a lanky human being, you know, but for my brain, it was just like the end of the world. But when I started to really own my story and own my journey, I got a lot of wonderful responses from my followers. I went pretty viral on some of my writing and I just got such a wonderful upswing and upswell of like love and support and connectivity from other people that, gosh, I just, I knew that I never wanted to be in that place again where I was just like, nothing is real and I'm putting up this smoke screen so I can hide behind it. And so, yeah, it was a really big part of deciding to become really public with it, you know, wanting to be real for my followers I mean, I still get people reaching out being like, how can I get your body? I usually just don't respond. I have people asking for my weight a lot and I'm like, I have no idea. (laughs) I haven't weighed myself in years. That's not for me. Sorry. But I mean, it's changed a bit now. Like I feel less inclined to kind of address it because I used to get quite like make a point of addressing every single thing. But like now it's more just, you know, people are on their own journey and I have been on a hell of a journey. (laughs) Coming up after the break, what exactly is postmenstrual dysphoric disorder and why was it the missing puzzle piece in Bridget's story? But first, a word from today's sponsor. You've spoken at length too, Bridget, about your experience with anxiety. How did that interact with your eating disorder? Do you think one kind of fueled the other? Yes. <laughs> Gosh, I look, I have wonderful parents. They did an amazing job with me. I had amazing upbringing. I think I just came out of the womb wired like this. Like I just from the age of 12 was an anxious kid and my parents did the best they could, but I was always anxious. And so for me, I first started messing with my food in the form of binge eating. Like at 12, I just remember like eating as much as I could just because I wanted to feel better. And then obviously modeling came along and it switched. But anxiety has been a kind of an ongoing process. I'm in a really good place now with it, but anxiety has been difficult. I have had years where I was pretty reliant on taking anti-anxiety medication, which 
in and of itself was its own issue because that's very addictive. And then I've been in places where I've been in such a bad headspace that I've had agoraphobia. I haven't been able to leave my house, you know, but that, that is linked to my um, hormones. So I have like a hormonal condition called premenstrual dysphoric disorder that really plunges me into the pits of despair every cycle. But I got on antidepressants and changed my life. A very low dose of those have really, really given me the space to be able to like see reality and see what is real and what isn't. Because like for me, a lot of anxiety is just catastrophizing. Like I think about what will happen if this happens and then all of a sudden I'm down this spiral, this death spiral. Whereas like I found with a lot of therapy as well, a lot of work and some antidepressants, I found I had the space to kind of be like, what's the reality of that happening? Like actually kind of low. So I'm just going to chill out. And if it happens, I'll worry about it then. (laughs) God, I relate to that as someone with anxiety who catastrophizes all the time. That is literally my life and what I've spent three and a half years working on with my psychologist as well, Bridget. I want us to talk about the premenstrual dysphoric disorder though. PMDD is something that is not really part of public discourse, despite the fact that it's thought to affect up to 8% of women, 15% of sufferers will attempt suicide. From my reading, it's very tied with menstrual cycle and hormones. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. I think it affects way more women than just that amount. Like since I started writing about it publicly, I've had like two friends come forward, no, three friends come forward and be like, wait, I think I have this. I, I really think that this obviously plays into the culture around periods and women. But like, it's not normal to lose your mind leading up to your period. It's not normal to have a week of deep depression and be unable to like stop eating chips and crying, to not be able to like sustain your workflow. And yeah, none of that is normal. And I think the idea that women just get hysterical that time of the month is really damaging and it stops a lot of women from getting the help that they really, really need. So for me, I noticed that I started having panic attacks that would seemingly come out of nowhere, which in and of itself is terrifying, which is another cause for more anxiety and more panic. But I found that they started to come cyclically. And I, my therapist was like, have you ever noticed, like, are they linked to your cycles? And I started tracking them and I was like, oh yeah, like all of my struggles are directly related to this one point in my cycle. So it's after I ovulate, but before I get my period. And then once I kind of got that, then she directed me to a psych and directed me to a doctor. And then for me, a small amount of antidepressants changed my life. But yeah, it's it's very interesting because it manifests in different ways with women. So for me, it manifests in like the desire to self-destruct essentially. So like deep depression, feelings of hopelessness, feeling like all the people who know and love me are all wrong and like I've tricked them all and they're all going to leave me someday. <laughs> I I get so anxious and so depressed. It, it, I used to not be able to go on set. My partner used to have to travel with me at that time. Like it was, it was really, it really impeded on my life. And then I'd get my period and like a day or two later, I'd be like back to myself. And I'm like, what is happening? (laughs) And then I know for other women though, it it like manifests in rage. It manifests in like attacking people, like very angry, fiery. It, It really just depends. And then there's also the physical symptoms of like, you feel like you have a flu. You feel like you, your brain is foggy. You just, you feel disgusting. (laughs) So it's like the worst day of PMS, but like 10 times worse for a week. And then it goes away instantly. That's kind of what it felt like for me. How relieved did you feel when you got that diagnosis? Did you sort of start connecting dots in your mind with everything that you've kind of been through? 
yeah, it was such a relief because I, I felt like I was losing the plot because there was no rhyme or reason. There was no, I mean, obviously I'd had a pretty intense life, but like, you know, it wasn't anything that I could like pinpoint. And then when I finally got the diagnosis, started reading into it, joined a couple of support groups, started to see like other women's experiences. And then I started to try different things to see what helped. It felt like it was something that I could actually like deal with. And I'm relieved. I'm so glad I got that diagnosis because then I could finally start to get better. Talk to us about getting better. There's probably this false narrative around recovery that it's linear and that as soon as you start trying to, I guess, brush out the cobwebs of your life, whether that's anxiety or an eating disorder or PMDD, that it's easy. It's not easy though. And I think all of us kind of have peaks and troughs when it comes to recovery. How has the last few years looked like for you? Yeah, I 100% agree with you. There is no straight line and what works for me might not work for someone else. So definitely grain of salt this one. But recovery began when I finally got honest with myself. And that took a really long time. I went into my therapist's office having panic attacks deeply underweight and was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I just keep having these panic attacks. It has nothing to do with my weight or anything. And she was kind of like, okay. (laughs) And then like after a few months, I started to put on weight and I was like, oh, now I'm really anxious about putting on weight. Like it it was was just this cycle of self-deception. And like, thankfully I had an amazing therapist who was just so gentle with me and slowly guided me into like awareness and acceptance and then finally action. And I mean, the last couple of years have been really interesting. My PMDD has really leveled out quite well, which is a relief because I was afraid I was going to be stuck in that cycle forever. The eating stuff has happened really settled as well, really naturally. Sometimes my body dysmorphia comes in and I kind of just go, okay, cool, cool. I'll talk to you later. Like I can't be bothered right now. And it goes away. But I do have to say, though, like I quit drinking about nearly two years ago, and that was like it for me. Like that really fixed a lot of issues. I found my anxiety got significantly better. My confidence improved dramatically. I started getting actual hunger signals for the first time. Like I was eating because I was hungry and because I felt like something. I'd start craving something and I'd be like, I'm going to eat that. You know, it felt like things just started happening more naturally for me. And that was honestly the biggest help for me on the way. And it wasn't like I was drinking enough to cause that much of an effect, but obviously I was because it changed everything. Like I just, I don't know, I I thought that it was kind of normal. (laughs) But no, the last year I lost weight for the first time since going into recovery. And that that was an experience because like I wasn't trying to, it kind of just happened. And I had to kind of look at it and I had to get really honest with myself. Am I, am I causing this to happen? No, it's just kind of getting older. I've been working out and I'm eating intuitively. So um, I just trust it. So it's like, it's interesting. I think having a background with anxiety or eating disorders, you are hyper aware of any change, like any upset to the equilibrium. You're like, what does this mean? Am I headed for a relapse? And it's like, it's about the tools you have to see like, is it really true or is it not? Do you have enough proof to kind of go on the fact that you're probably good? But I have my standards. I have a few set points where I'm like, if I dip below this, then I need to work on that. And yeah, so far so good. Three years killing it. (laughs) Talk to us about fear then, because as you've said yourself, lots of models go through the kinds of things that you've been through, but don't share for fear of losing work or ruining their career. Have you felt fear or have you worried that you might lose things like work or something else because of telling these stories? 
Yeah, definitely. The beautiful thing is, though, I'm at the point where I just don't care. And it's not like I'm going to go around like airing dirty laundry everywhere. Like I, I don't care to do that either. As far as I see it, the industry has changed dramatically from when I was at my sickest. And so like, you know, I'm comfortable talking about Victoria's Secret now because I do want to highlight how far they've come and the changes that they have made. And I guess that's the crux of when I was writing in an industry that wasn't receptive to diversity. I was really mindful to do it in a way that wasn't dragging people under the bus. Like it wasn't like pointing fingers and telling people that they suck. I really tried hard to not give too many identifying features and to kind of focus on what needs to be done rather than what has been done. And I'm quite proud of how I pulled that off. I definitely had a lot of amazing help from people within the industry. But like, yeah, that first article I wrote that like went viral, I was terrified. I walked into my agency and I think he was the director at the time. He came running down the hallway and I was just like, oh my God, am I fired? I'm sorry. And he gave me a big hug and he's like, no, I'm so proud of you. I was like, oh, okay, cool. But yeah, I think it's a testament though to like where the industry's at now. Like there is space for discussion and there is space for positivity and like upward motion. I, I think for a very long time, models were afraid of losing work. And so they kept quiet and just put up with things that they don't need to put up with. And yeah, I think I just hit a point of just like, I just don't care anymore. Like I just don't. And it, it was also like writing was really helpful for me. So I guess it was a combo of like, I don't care and I like to write. So let's just see what happens. And, you know, I have a lot of people like asking me, like, will I go back to writing or blogging? And at the moment, the answer is no. I feel like that was a real, served a real purpose and it really helped me for a while. But onwards and upwards. <laughs> I mean, we wanted to ask you this. I think I know the answer based on what you just said, Bridget, but if there was a young woman in your life, whether that's a future daughter or a future niece or whatever, and she wanted to go into modeling, would you encourage her or would you be nervous about that? How would you feel? Funny you should ask that question. So what actually kicked all of this off, like writing and being public, was my cousin. She's absolutely gorgeous. She's super smart. And she got scouted to model at my wedding by like three different people. <laughs> and I kind of was like, wow, like I don't want her to go through what I've gone through. I don't think there's any reason for her to go through what I've gone through. And so obviously, like I set her up with my agent who I trust implicitly, like he's taken care of me for years and he's just the best. And there are incredible people in the industry. And I mean, at the end of the day, like she ended up going to college and is super stoked and happy. Given like my experience with my cousin, I think the advice that I would always give is know your reasons why you want to model. Like for me, straight up, I wanted to make money. And then as I got into the industry, I was wanted to get the Victoria's Secret show. And that was why. And then like when I kind of achieved that, I was like, okay, now what? <laughs> and so like, you know, have your reasons why. And like, if your reason is to be famous, then all right, more power to you. It's a difficult way to be famous. But at the end of the day, like the best models in the world are the ones who have something more to offer. So without a doubt, finish school and like, have a lot of interest in life I had castings where they asked me to bring my oboe I was mortified and like most of the time I said that I forgot it but like <laughs> you know you develop a personality outside of the industry and kind of develop passions that make you you that 
can't be co-opted by the industry because like at the end of the day this whole like exterior experience is fleeting you will age and then you will age out of your job as a model and you kind of want to have something else going for you at the end of it so like whenever I quit I stopped doing Victoria's Secret and got into recovery I started studying and so I'm in my final year of my bachelor's starting my master's next year and I'm doing an internship at the UN and I have like been working on a few projects within the fashion industry like I've been implementing a mental health support system for models and started my podcast and it's like that period of time where I've been like doing everything else and modeling has been when I've been the happiest and when the industry has felt the best because people are just people now on set like they're not people I have to impress or I'm afraid of them they're just you know, they're people. It's really nice. I can have actual friendships. What fills your cup now? I mean, you mentioned quite a few things that you're working on at the moment, but you are such a talented person in so many different ways. What do you want out of your career from here? I want to, I mean, it's going to sound so cheesy, but I want to help people on the biggest possible scale that I can. So for me, public health has been something that I'm, I truly am passionate about. Like I really, I find it really interesting to observe the differences between different nations about how they address similar issues. And I think that it's such like a wonderful way to help people on the largest possible scale. So I started in nutrition, doing a bachelor's in food nutrition. And yeah, it was the units on like the individual and social determinants of health that like really got my mind going. So yeah, I I want to work within an organization like the UN or any of their like many other organizations under that umbrella. And I want to work in a way to kind of help other people have access to just basic human rights, you know, which to me is healthy food, clean water, all of that. So I'm not quite sure what that looks like, but I feel like everything is kind of happening in the right direction. So maybe in like three years, four years, I'll be (laughs) where I'm supposed to be. Who knows? (laughs) Bridget, second last question. We have a hypothetical for you. Say you overhear a table of acquaintances speaking about you. What would you want them to say if they're describing you and how they know you? What are the top words that come to your mind? I mean, (laughs) I want people to leave interactions with me with a good feeling. And I know that a lot of the time that's out of my control, but you know, I, I think a lot about like people don't remember what you say as much as how you made them feel. And I I would hope that people would be like, mm, it's great. <laughs> I, I'd want people to like know that they could come to me if they're struggling. I'm always really honored when I am that friend, when people reach out and they need advice. I love that. Just that I'm like kind, I guess. And yeah, really good at oboe and base. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, next time we ever have you on, you're going to have to bring the oboe to prove that to be true. But Bridget, okay. our, la- our last question for you with all of this in mind, what does success mean to you? I think it links back into that answer. To me, success can be measured in the quality of my relationships. I have friends who I've known since I had red hair and a mullet and braces, you know, and like I'm still friends with them and I love them so much and my personal relation my partner like to me success is how everything feels there and the sort of energy that I bring to those relationships and it could even be like a work acquaintance or it's my boss or it's someone on set but it's like to me the biggest marker of success is how well how well I get to know the people in my relationships and how present I am with them and how much I like 
appreciate them for who they are. And that's not to say that I succeed. I spent a lot of the time with my head shoved up my ass, concocting stories about people. But like, I know that whenever I'm doing well is like whenever I'm like, ah, yes, this person's just incredible for like these qualities. And I'm so lucky to have them in my life. Yeah, I feel like whenever I'm in that headspace, everything else just settles into like where it's supposed to be. Bridget, you are remarkable. I am basically your biggest fan after listening to this chat. You're doing such incredible stuff. And yeah, we're so, so grateful that you spent the last 45 minutes with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was lovely. I'm really excited to hear it. Love the work you do. Thanks, Bridget. Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode with Bridget Malcolm. If you want more from Bridget, follow her on Instagram at Bridget Malcolm and download her new podcast. It is called Model Mentality and you will find it in your favorite podcasting app. If you loved this chat about the modeling industry, may we also recommend you listen to the episode we did with model and entrepreneur Steph Claire Smith. You will find the link to that one in our show notes. It was such a goodie. As for us, we are an independent pop culture podcast. We put out new episodes every single week. In fact, every few days or so. The number one way to support our show is to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review if you enjoy what we do or click follow on Spotify. We will be back in your ears on Thursday, guys. Until then, have a wonderful week. Stay safe and yeah, Zara, what else? Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.